and just want to warn you this episode contains explicit language i think the the nature part is that somehow you're born with an excitement for something and i've given guitar and piano lessons before and i usually i'll tell the parents right away like I can keep doing this, but I'm going to tell you right now, your kid is not excited about this. Mm -hmm. And if they're not excited, the, the, the nurture part's not going to kick in. Right, welcome to the path distilled i'm your host kevin harris my co-host is lauren tashman and hi everybody welcome to the show today we have a wonderful guest we have sean kelly from sixpence none the richer they were a grammy nominated band with uh hits that i'm sure you know kiss me breathe in your name don't dream it's over and there she goes welcome to the show today sean yeah thanks for having me guys i appreciate it so if you would tell us a little bit um about who you are and uh kind of take us back to that beginning of your story <clears throat> oh well God, well my story begins in albuquerque new mexico that's where i grew up um listening to music i guess the the first few things i remember listening to were eight tracks of um of cat stevens my parents had that around and on a side note man that guy's making quite a comeback right now and i just <laughs> adore him and uh, uh, still obsess over his music but that really got me interested in, in um learning how to play guitar uh, I was a Catholic schoolboy in Albuquerque, so um, I guess the people that um, were my mentors as far as learning guitar were the nuns in the Catholic Church. So I was always curious after a mass as to, hey, what's the chord you're playing there? And, and so eventually, by the time I was in the fifth or sixth grade, uh, they they brought me up to play in mass and I learned, you know, a D, C, and a G, or whatever, and um, so from there, I just I always just wanted to get on stage and play, and I always, whoever was a musician that I was friends with, I would try to talk them into being a band with me, and we would play talent shows, and that went on all through high school. Um, different bands played in talent shows. Um, the the James from the Shins was grew up with me in Albuquerque we weren't real close but he was always in a band just a little shittier than the one that I was in and, um, and now he had the last laugh didn't he <laughs> yeah. but so, yeah so I eventually came to Nashville to go to Belmont and you know from there I just stayed in the music business wow um, so what was those early uh, practices like for you what were you doing to get better at the time oh man um Sometimes I'm not sure if I was more interested in just being in a band or really getting better at the guitar. I think sometimes it's more being in a band. So I, um, I, I liked bands like U2 and The Clash because they weren't really great musicians, and that's that was I was more of a band guy. So um, I think I, I didn't really start becoming a really decent musician until I I moved to Nashville, and I wasn't like the cool guitar player in, in my high school in Albuquerque. I was one of a bajillion guitar players in Nashville so I had to get better at that point uh so yeah I don't I don't think I really really honed in on my craft until I I got to Belmont and realized man there's a lot of good players out here I better start getting good at my instrument what uh tell us a little bit more about what led to you choosing Nashville and deciding to go there yeah yeah I had a, a friend in Albuquerque that 
said he was interested in a music business school in Nashville. And um, for some reason, New York seemed a little intimidating and so did Los Angeles. So Nashville just seemed like a middle area to go to. And uh, the friend of mine that introduced me to Belmont never ended up going. So I, I just went by myself and um, I didn't really, it wasn't one of those things I thought too much about. I just thought, okay, you've got New York, LA or Nashville. I'm sure there's obviously other music business towns out there, but Nashville just seemed like the right fit. Um, going to Belmont, I don't know how familiar with, with Belmont, uh, it was called Belmont College when I was there, um, but it was it was heavily influenced by the Southern Baptist Convention, and that was a little weird for a, a Catholic guy who didn't really like going to church to begin with um, to be in that surrounding, and um, I felt like I was definitely uh, an outcast. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it, it, it was interesting to go to, to a school that was influenced by a lot of country and Christian music because that was I was far from that as far as what I grew up around. So I, I did learn a lot being around that part of the industry and being at Belmont. So kind of how soon before you made the decision to go did you start to think that you would make music a career? Yeah, great question, because I, I went to Belmont for a music business degree almost in a way that I was almost kind of saying, I don't know if I'm good enough to do this. So, and I'm not saying that about other people that go into music business, but I, in a way, I think if I really can be honest with myself, I was choosing the music business path because I felt like it was safer than, than being a musician. But once I met some um, like-minded musicians at Belmont and put a band together, um, I thought, okay, th this is really where my passion is. And I don't know if it's ever going to turn into money, but throughout my um, time at Belmont and about two years after I played in the same band, we were called the Lounge Flounders, the greatest band no one's ever heard of. <laughs> but, um, we actually, uh, I know you didn't ask that question, but we, we actually ended up putting out a, a CD. It was on a, a record label and, it, and I think we sold, a thousand copies and 500 of those were to my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's cool. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the getting to Belmont and then the path to that first record label. Yeah. So, um, as I was at Belmont, um, and I, and I met three other fellows that we, you know, we started a band and, um, they were, I swear at the time, they were the only other people that weren't into Christian rock. And, and they were they were into R.E.M. and U2 and all the bands I was into. So we, we were a band that would just kind of, you know, that was our influence with our sound. But um, as I got to my senior year, we were playing a lot of shows. We, we, would, we would leave on the weekends and go to Memphis and Little Rock and do these weekend uh, tours in our van that broke down a lot um and but as i i think back about that i mean we didn't have god i sound like such an old man right now but we didn't have cell phones or anything like we always had to pull over and and uh call the club on a pay phone and i swear to god i would still be in that band right now if we didn't argue about you know the directions you know if we had if we had maps on our phones we would still be a band <laughs> I keep veering on the question. Um, we, but that path um, really led me to not necessarily wanting to be behind the scenes. I, I wanted to be on stage. Um, and when we graduated, I segued into getting a record deal and um, 
putting a CD out and, and that's tough. I really feel for a lot of artists that go through that whole path and eventually um, sign a deal and put out an album. And then it's like, okay, now what? And if, if it doesn't do well, that, that's a really scary place to be and, and heartbreaking. And um, luckily, really heartbreaking if you're like the lead singer, you know, because that that's it puts so much pressure on, on that person. Um, but once that band kind of um, dissolved, I was able to, to kind of pick up one gig after another and, and uh, sustain a, a career as a guitar player slash musician for about 15 years after I graduated from Belmont. Well, I'm curious, what was it, what was going through your head or your bandmates heads if they told you about it what was happening uh, what did it feel like going through the negotiating process um, for the label so the, the going back to the the lounge flounders um, I don't I, I don't remember a whole lot about all the negotiations um, but it was Mercury Records and I don't know oh. who owned them and who owned whoever but at the time um, we we had signed with them they were handling the big Kiss reunion tour and Joan Osborne who had a really big hit right around then. And so I kind of, you can always blame it on the record label, but who knows the stars just didn't align, but that the priority became the other um, musicians that were on that label. And we ended up going out on, on some pretty fun tours. We opened up for a band called Dishwalla. The um, County Blue Cars was their big hit. Wow. Uh, we we toured with a band called The Refreshments. Um, they, they had a couple fun hits around in, in the mid '90s. I think they did the theme song to King of the Hill. So um, and, and then just and that that was a really really fun era. I mean, I would say that band was really truly um, my my baby. You know, I, I wrote the songs and created and produced the music with the lead singer. Um, and and I haven't really necessarily, I've produced a lot of projects, but that was, that was my band, you know, and, and after that, it was more like I was always a guitar player for this band or that band or producing a project. But um, I, I was, I feel fortunate to be able to have had that era in my life where I was in a band, it's just four guys on the road and a beat up van and all those fun stories that you hear about in, in the 90s of a band trying to make it. Um, and we never really made it, but we at least got to a certain level that created some really great stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm curious. Uh, it reminds me, uh, the dog chasing the car. And so the label is usually what the bands are chasing. Um, and you achieved that. So at that moment, was it immediate relief or did it suddenly add more pressure or was it something else? In the moment, it felt like this is, I, this is what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. I just didn't see anything beyond trying to put an album out and, you know, with, with this band. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it, I, I actually regret not being smart enough to sort of look at the next step, you know, I was, I, but maybe in, in a good way, I was always living in the moment and mm -hmm. hoping for the best with that group. And um, yeah, like I say, it didn't work out, but it, the, um, a couple of really fun things. Uh, I, w I have a 12 year old son and we were, I was driving him to this camp last summer in downtown Nashville. And I passed an old church right across from Third and Lindsley. And um, I said, oh, hey, Finn, my son. It's like, man, this is where the Lounge Flounders recorded their album. And we, we, we did it old school. We set up in an old church, it was vacant. Um, this guy, Jay Joyce, produced it. 
And um, one, one of those moments that's like, yeah, I look back and I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that I, I embraced the 90s music era in, in every way I think I could have. Yeah. I'm curious about, you mentioned that you went to Belmont, you know, kind of feeling like it was a little bit of a, a safety move, right? Like, yeah. and then you get this record label. Did your mindset then switch or did your sense of confidence switch once you got that, that uh, label? Yeah, the label interest started happening my senior year at Belmont, and um, the other two of the other guys in the band, we were all at the same. Um, we were all seniors, I think, at the time, and and they decided to to drop out of school, and and I was just like, man, I've got to get my degree out. It's something was just tugging at me that I needed to finish this thing, um, and so I was able to manage touring a lot on the weekends and then going to class during the week. Um, I, I was about to graduate and realized I was nine credit hours short of graduating because I didn't do any internships and everybody at Belmont's doing like, you know, making coffee at publishing companies and stuff. I didn't have time to do that. So I went into um, the, I guess the headmaster of the music business department, Bob Malloy. He's um, passed away about 10 years ago, but really great guy. And I said, I said, man, I'm not going to graduate because of this. And he said, dude, you've, been slugging it out on the road you're you're playing manager you're calling clubs like the exit in and booking shows he, he wrote off the nine hours and and i was able to graduate and um in 1995 so i don't know if that answers your question but i, I was able to survive college and continue to play in the band and, and uh keep that band going for the next few years after makes a lot of sense because the part of the those research experience or the internship hours, those types of things, it's intended to give people experience as what they might be doing after they graduate. And someone that's on tour with a major label, it definitely makes sense that you're accomplishing that. So. You're gonna learn more doing that than in any class. And, and I, every, I would say a couple times a year, um, a family will hire me that's funding a, an EP project for their son or daughter who's maybe in their teens or 20s. Um, and, you know, I tell them it's, it's definitely an investment to, for me to go into a studio in Nashville and get some, some great players. But um, if, if they're willing to make that investment, it's like going to Belmont for two years plus some. You know, you're going through the whole process of writing a song and, and learning the business and being in a studio. And so it really is um, that that experience versus being in the classroom it's such a cliche thing to say but it's it's worth hours and hours of being in the classroom just getting out there and figuring it out on your own and doing it so as this original band begins to dissolve uh, did you feel like lightning could strike twice what happens next it was it was actually devastating for me because i made the mistake of living in the same house as these guys, which I would never recommend if you're in a band, just, just don't live in the same house, it's a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, we, the, the other three guys were going in this more folky direction, um, kind of following the path of what the lead singer wanted to do. And, you know, I, I wanted to be what, what every band on the radio was and, and almost, you know, I respect the I respect the fact that they wanted to do something a little different, but I just I wanted a hit. I wanted to be on the radio. I wanted to sound like whatever we were hearing on the radio at that time. And as we weren't really selling any records, only to my grandma mainly, um, it just seemed like it was time to dissolve. And I think it was really the other other three guys, and they were very respectful 
they were like, you know, we, we don't want to kick you out of the band. We're going to, we want to dissolve the band and start some other band and do our folky thing. Um, and so I, I guess in a way I was like, well, gosh, this, even though we're not the lounge flounders anymore, I feel like I was the one that got kicked out of the band. And that was, that was kind of devastating. And so then I just worked for a landscaping company for a while after that. <laughs> it was a very, very depressing time. <laughs> and, and I always, I played guitar and backed up some other people here and there. And they went on to be the Foo Fighters, right? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that was a joke right. for, for the record. But, um, yeah, so, so you landscape for a period of time. What comes after that? Well, um, being in Nashville, uh, and this is the irony because I'm, I'm kind of a smart ass and, and I consider myself a, a Christian believer. Um, but the, the whole Christian music scene was not my thing. And I, I did my share of making fun of it. Sorry, whoever Michael W. Smith is out there listening. Um, but it, but inevitably it was the, some of these B Christian artists that had deals and had some money and this built in audience like that, that needed a guitar player. So I, I started just slugging it out on the road and playing guitar for a bunch of Christian artists that you've never heard of, but they, they, they paid pretty well. And, um, and it was actually really nice. Uh, it was strange because I always felt like it was weird to set up in a church and play music and sell tickets and sell merchandise mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And then um, the headlining band always had this kind of strange emotional altar call at the end of it. And that made me uncomfortable. It was a very uh, uncomfortable time, but at the same time, it was nice to know that when I showed up for a gig, people were going to be there because half the time with the lounge flanders, we would drive five hours to a bar in Mississippi and there would be like the bartender and two of the other workers watching us, you know? So I was like, okay, this is cool. It's not necessarily my, my taste in music, but I've always, and um, I, I tell a lot of people this that are younger than me, much younger than me, that sometimes you're not always going to, be in like the band that you, you want to be in or be playing the music that you love, but, but find those little moments in the music that, that are exciting. And, and I did that as a guitar player, but there's always a few songs that I really look forward to playing and a few moments. And, and I was able to sort of shut out a lot of the Christian music weirdness going on and just look at it as a, man, I'm getting hired to play guitar. This is pretty cool. Not a lot of people get to do this. So that, that's what I did for the, the next couple of years. So are you still landscaping at that time? No, no, just at my own house now and then. Oh, oh I'm sorry, I thought you meant now. Um, no, no. <laughs> no, at that point, I, I, I think I, I had enough um, enough work to, to not have to landscape and um, at least, but that's a whole other story. I mean, you you get into this world where you're, you're as good as your last gig and you, cool, you get, you get a four-week tour with, so-and-so and then that ends and I'm like oh crap what am I gonna do for money now but luckily I was able to play that game where I lined one up after another for, for a few years there what happens next sixpence <laughs> um they I oh god how did that all happen I mean in, in Nashville it's just a very small community of of musicians especially in this Christian music world at least at the time and um, I mean, this could I go on for four hours about this. Sixpence None the Richer at the time was um, the lead singer Lee Nash and, and the um, 
guitar player, main writer, Matt Slocum, um, they had moved from Texas to Nashville and they had this pretty cool underground Christian music following. And, um, I, I knew of them and heard their, their first album and, and liked them a lot. And, um, they were about to go on a, a tour and they, they needed another guitar player. Um, so I guess my number fell into their lap and they called me up and I was about to go out with some other band that was, I can't remember the name, but they were fairly well established. And I, I was like, I just loved Lee's voice. Um, I liked the music they were doing. It was very much them instead of a band trying to be the Christian version of some secular band that existed like Sixpence was its own sound. And I liked that. And, and so I wanted to be a part of that. Um, and I said yes and rehearsed with them and it just felt great. And I really liked everybody in the group. Uh, and then we started traveling and then I sort of became an official member and started recording with them. And um, yeah, it, it, the, the thing that I think that tugged at every, everybody in the band, and I realized this from the second I started rehearsing with them, is that they signed a, a record deal with a Christian label when they were very, very young. And they were part of the church community in Texas. Um, they wrote some songs that were, I guess, spiritual and religious, but other songs about whatever going on in, in their world. So they didn't necessarily want to be pigeonholed into that bubble. You know, they, they didn't want to have to feel the pressure of playing a show in a church and saying, oh, you have to go minister to the kids at the end of the show. I mean, that they just wanted to be a band and they wanted to have the freedom to write the songs that they wanted to write and play for anybody that wanted to come see them. And I really liked that a lot. And I saw it as a great way to, even if we were going to have to struggle a little bit for a while to not just be, for lack of a better word, stuck in the Christian market. <laughs> so what did that feel like when they did bring you on? What, did you have thoughts in, about this is another shot? Um, did it, what, did that, what was that like for you? Well, it's pretty damn cool because they had a they had a tour bus, and I'd never been on a tour bus before. So, I mean, I remember throwing my suitcase in the bay underneath the bus and walking on, and I went to my bunk, and I felt like I had arrived. Like even if that was my only gig, I would have felt like I had made it as a musician at that point, and been pretty pretty happy because they were they were doing pretty well in the Christian market when when I joined with them, um, enough to to have. A, a tour bus and, and tour churches. So um, what was really cool about that and, and that I really respected is that we did a, a three month tour and then it was like we had, we went backwards as far as making money because once we decided that we didn't want to just continue to be in this Christian music bubble and, and really try to promote uh, a song on an album that we had just recorded to the um, to the pop world or secular world or whatever you want to call it. Um, that meant we weren't playing shows at churches anymore and making money. We were having to go to radio stations and meet with people and make no money and, and try to move this band over into a, a broader audience. Um, so then we weren't on a tour bus anymore. We were in a band. <laughs> <laughs> So was there any it only lasted for about three months. It was really cool, though. <laughs> was there any uh, conflict among members on which direction to take it? 
No, we were all on board with it from what I remember. Yeah. So tell us what it was like trying to make that launch into the pop world. Um, it was all of 1998 from the beginning of 98 to almost the end of that year. Um, it didn't feel like we were um, a, a band playing like live music together. It felt like we were this marketing team getting in a van and then going to a plane and then getting picked up by a record label representative um, and going to a radio station. And we did this, I guess it was a very old school way of doing it at the time. Um, we had a little PA system and it turned into this routine. It was funny, like we would unload the PA, set it up into a lunchroom at a radio station and put on an acoustic concert for the program director and whoever at the radio station wanted to listen to us. And we, we played Kiss Me and um, There She Goes and some other songs off, off the album. And they would be like, wow, this is really nice. We, we like you guys. And um, we would leave and, and maybe a day or two later, the program director would say, we're gonna add Kiss Me to our format. Um, and some would say, we don't really like the song. We're not gonna add it to our format. And we did that for a whole year and it was cool. It's like, all right, high five, we got the ad. And oh darn, we, we didn't. And at this point we were pretty much running out of money and we um, were getting pretty deflated because even though some radio stations were adding Kiss Me, others were dropping it three months later because it wasn't getting this momentum. And it's hit songs are weird. I don't know. How, I know there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that happens with it. But um, in this particular situation, it wasn't happening fast enough and, and building momentum off each other. So like I say, we would get some ads in San Francisco and then the ones that happened in, say, Poughkeepsie, New York, would, would, those stations would drop the song. And um, by the end of 1998, I think we were um, not really sure if the band was going to continue just because we didn't necessarily want to go back to doing the churches. Um, and we weren't making any money in, in the, the pop market. And, and the shows that we were playing would still be some kind of it would, we would try, we were trying to play clubs and we would get a lot of the, the, I guess the Christian music fans didn't like that. And we didn't have enough fans that were okay being in bars to, to come see us. So things were kind of crashing and burning um, until <laughs> we, we played a, a show at the Viper Room in Los Angeles. And is that what it's called? Yeah, I think it was the Viper Room. And we had a, a representative from Columbia Records and then a, a director, producer from Miramax Pictures just happened to be at the show. Um, and they said, oh, we, we love that song, Kiss Me. We want to put it in a movie uh, called She's All That. And so I thought, um, stop me if I'm rambling at any point, really. No, no that's I'm, great. I'm yeah. My feelings. Um, so they they both agreed that they wanted to, to put Kiss Me in, in the movie, She's All That, and they wanted to be in a featured in a pre predominant moment of, of that movie. And so that was exciting to us because um, they were gonna pay for us to do a music video for the song. Um, and then we were gonna get the exposure of, of it being in, in the movie. So we, we did that, we, we made, the, it was probably 
the last um, two days before Christmas in 1998, we went and made the video for Kiss Me. And, you know, I grew up listening to music in the 80s and, and would jump around on my bed playing guitar, pretending I'm a rock star, dreaming of being in a music video. Um, I had, you know, dreamt this whole thing up. And finally, I get to be in my first music <laughs> video and they hand me a fucking accordion to play on a bench. <laughs> that's does not, that just doesn't look cool at all, you know? But um, I gladly grabbed the accordion and played the hell out of that thing in that video. No, I didn't actually, I looked stupid playing it. If you go back and watch it, I clearly don't look like I, I know what I'm, I'm doing. Um, but hey, I was in a music video, so that was cool. I'm not complaining. <laughs> so does it take time for the momentum to build or is this pretty much instantaneously once this happens? Yeah. So, um, the movie comes out in, I think January or February of 1999. Um, we were so excited. We, we, we were hanging our hats on this movie. Like this was it. If this didn't work out, we're done. Um, I mean, again, that kiss me was being played on the radio a little bit before this, but not enough to sustain any money or career or anything like that. So um, we went to the premiere. It was really cool. We got to walk on the red carpet and hang out with Freddie Prince Jr. and whoever else was in the movie. And um, we were all in our late 20s at this point, mid to late 20s. And when the movie was over, I was sick to my stomach. I thought it was the worst movie ever. I was like, we're done. And, and I think from what I remember, the other members felt the same way that this was just a pile of crap of a movie. It was going to get just destroyed by the critics. And it was every cliche you could possibly imagine. And the moment our Kiss Me was played in, it was really stupid. We, I don't know, maybe we just were a little too highbrow for it. But we, I was convinced that that was the end. Um, and went back to Nashville feeling pretty deflated about it. And uh, a week later, our publicist called up and said, she's all that's the number one movie in America right now. And a lot of radio stations want to add Kiss Me to their format. <laughs> I was like, wow. So then came Conan O'Brien. Um, and I think we did Leno shortly after that. And the stars just aligned. Like the, the movie was doing really well. Somehow the song got into Dawson's Creek. I don't really know the connection there, but then I, I remember seeing the video on VH1 and they replaced the She's All That scenes with Dawson's Creek scenes instead. And that helped the song, I guess. And uh, really from, from that spring of 1999, things moved really, really fast. And it was insane to just be able to go anywhere and turn on the radio and kiss me would come on and it still like cracks me up when I hear it, but it, 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 it's like it, wow, that's, that's happening. That's crazy. It was totally surreal. And so it must've been an abrupt shift from barely hanging on as a band to this rocket ship of popularity. Yeah. Because in a way people don't, people think that, Oh, that just happened not necessarily overnight, but it happened quick and it, and it did in a way, but there was an entire year of just slugging it out in a van, visiting radio stations, trying to get this thing off the ground. Um, and it, 
then just some luck had to kick in, I guess. And we were really, really, I think the song was good, good enough to be on the radio, but we just had that, that luck factor that kicked in. And um, I don't remember if somebody invited the Miramax people to the Viper room that night, or they just happened to show up, but we were really fortunate that that happened because I, I don't think if, if that song hadn't landed and she's all that, I, things would be com completely different, I think. Um, and so are you expanding your touring at this point or how does that go? Yeah, it, that was, it was interesting because I, I think we were all really, really eager to start playing some shows because really all we'd been doing is these acoustic performances and, and radio stations. So finally, um, we, we started touring, but I don't think almost that entire year until maybe the end of 1999, we never really played any of our own shows. It was always like a little fair thing or um, opening up. Uh, we did a lot of radio festivals that summer. And if you don't show up and do the KZR or whatever festival in New York, well, they're going to threaten to drop your song. So you show up no matter how far you have to travel. So it became a bit of a shit show in that sense that we, we were bowing down to the radio stations. And, and then the Christian music industry was getting upset because we weren't doing the the big festivals that they were used to us do us doing and i'm not kidding there was at least two or three times where we would um play a festival in like iowa uh for a radio station and then we'd fly to <clears throat> illinois the same night to do a christian music thing so we were really really working hard and really busy trying to appease in a way, two industries and two genres. We actually had a label in the, the Christian industry putting out our record um, and then a label in the pop area doing it. And so they were both kind of dragging us back and forth to making sure we're making everybody happy. So it, it really became, I never really achieved anything anywhere near some of big artists, the, the level that big artists get, but I, I do kind of understand how they're tugging a lot of different directions to try to, make people happy and, and please the radio station and please the label. And it, it can definitely take its toll on you after a while and can be very exhausting. I was going to say, it sounds exhausting. It, it was. It, it, and boring too. Like I, I, people just don't completely realize until they're out there doing it. It is exciting. You can see different cities, but 90% of the time you're just sitting around waiting and that's it. So is, are you happy during this early phase of success no um i was i was having fun i had moments of of happiness but it's weird not being an original member of a band because if if you're asked to, to join that band let's be honest usually it's because i mean they like you they like you as a player but they really want you to just not charge any money for playing guitar and be a part of the the team you know we're all going to struggle with this together well you know once the money started coming in we weren't so much a team anymore it was the original members which they they were due their their reward for for playing in the band longer than us and writing the songs i i, I get that but i think that maybe it wasn't completely their fault but you you spend so much time promoting something and not playing any live shows and, and 
we were in debt and I think the only money that was really starting to come in was a little bit of publishing money, which was certainly not going to me. So there, for me and the, the bass player and the drummer, we were really struggling because we were not necessarily making much money at all. I mean, geez, we were doing like these huge arenas opening up for boy bands at the time and literally making less than a thousand dollars a month. I mean, and that changed and it, it didn't change a, a whole lot, but it, it, it got worked out eventually and, and, and things were better. But, um, I tell you if I, I don't, I don't think people are necessarily looking for my advice, but I give it anyway. I, I would, even at a young age in a band, just define who you are. And, and if it's, if you're part of the band, then let's put a contract together that says I'm part of the band. And if you're not, pay me what I think I'm worth that you can afford. And, and I'm going to be a hired person this entire time. If you want me to pretend like I'm part of the band, cool, but, but define what it is instead of just being a cool guy or gal and saying, Oh, I, I believe in the music. I'm going to play for no money and then hope something good happens because something really good happened to us. And, and uh, unfortunately the, the money necessarily wasn't there as promised. <laughs> That's all. I was, I was going to ask you about that because as someone who works a lot on, on team culture, whether it's a sports team I've worked with or a startup company, there's always this excitement when they're trying to pursue something for the first time and yeah. there might be some conflict and, and things, but nobody really cares, right? Because yeah. you're trying to get something. And then that completely changes when you do get it and you get some level of success, things shift, right? So could you talk a little bit more about what it was like when you, you know, 98, you're pursuing this thing as a team and then that, that switch comes in? Yeah, you're right. Because I think what I'm kind of reading from you is, you don't want to be that person when everybody's like energized and excited about an idea and say, Hey, can we kind of make a contract here and, and spell this out? You know, that you look like the jerk that's not art artistic and passionate about it, you know, but Hey, be that jerk, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> trust me. Um, but yeah, what does that look like? I mean, um, a, a great example is um, somewhere in the middle of, of doing this radio station tour uh, the song there she goes that wasn't on the original version of the self-titled album that had kiss me um, but we had been jamming on it in soundcheck um, it's a song that we all loved we were all uh, fans of the band the laws and they were the original band of that song and so we, we played it and, and then um, the managers or record company people said oh you guys should go in the studio and record that and like yeah cool let's go in the studio and record that so we had a couple of days off in nashville went in and, and um, recorded There She Goes. Um, I didn't make any money that day playing. I was just in the band having fun, playing guitar. It's what I'm passionate about, right? Uh, didn't sign any union papers or anything. And then um, a few weeks later, we're, we're Kiss Me is, um, I mean, a few months later, Kiss Me is a, a, a number one song in the country. And now they're thinking, um, okay, we need a follow-up hit to that song. and, and the testing or whatever they were doing, nothing was coming up on the album. So they decided to add that recording of There She Goes. We had done uh, two months prior to that to the album, repackaged the album, put There She Goes out as our second single. And lo, lo and behold, that, that became our second single. It did pretty well. 
it landed in like a WNBA promo and all this stuff where, you know, musicians should be making some money off that. And, and we didn't. And that's really my own fault for not being the uncool person in the session that day saying, hey, I'm not going to play guitar until, you know, we sign some paperwork on this. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's hard to do. Sure. The time. So you had a seven year run with the band, right? Yeah, I think more like six, but yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and so you gave us a picture. Um, what's going on in the picture you sent? Uh, I think I'm just playing a, a live show, possibly. Oh, that's at the House of Blues. Um, and, uh, oh, that's my loud and guitar made of Kona wood. And I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I traded it for another guitar about five years ago. But anyway. Um, <laughs> What, what am I thinking in this picture or doing? I, we're at the House of Blues. Um, for what I remember, it, it was one of those, well, I remember the show because I tell you, I just don't feel like we did enough really great live shows is like our own headlining, we're the headliner, you know? And, and that I believe was the House of Blues in Chicago. And um, by the time There She Goes and Kiss Me had been played on the radio, we were starting to get pretty good crowds or at least enough of a crowd on our own without having to play a little affair to, to fill in, fill out a room like the house of blues. And, and those were my favorite kind of shows when it was our show, our fans. And it wasn't like some big hot festival where a bunch of bands were playing after us. So I'm looking at that picture and feeling like that, that's a pretty good memory. I have a capo on the third fret, so I'm either playing There She Goes or Kiss Me. <laughs> That's what I assumed. No, I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> I love the 90s haircut, too. Yeah. Really apropos yeah. of that time period. <laughs> Wait, that, hair, that hair's not cool anymore? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're like me, at least you still have it. So, uh, Unlike me, I should say. Uh, what did you find challenging about either band life or the music industry? Um, I didn't find anything too challenging about playing with that band live. I, I, I love the band. I, we just, it was a great band. I don't necessarily think we were like the greatest uh, showmen or show. I mean, we, we didn't jump around and have pyrotechnics or anything crazy, but I felt like we were a really solid band live and, and everybody um, kind of knew their place and, and supported Lee's vocals really well. Um, and, you know, we did, sometimes we would play a show that we weren't excited about, but I would say nine out of 10 times we'd walk off the stage and be pretty proud of our performances. And we worked really hard. Like we, we rehearsed a lot. We were real meticulous about the parts, the sounds. Um, it, when, when I, I played electric guitar, um, at least 75% of the time and, and uh, Matt, the other guitar player, we were real meticulous about our effects and delays and amp tones and all that kind of stuff. So we were definitely, um, we were nerdy musicians at the same time and enjoyed the whole live show process. Uh, the, the challenging part was, um, again, just that the hours of being on the road, the traveling with each other. Um, honestly, I don't know how any band works for more than two years. I mean, it's, such a recipe for dysfunction. I mean, you, you put a bunch of people in a small confined space together and it's a marriage and it's a business and it's a creative thing and all those things together can, they're, they'll drive you mad. But I would say for the most part, we all 
got along fairly well and um, and enjoyed the process. I've I've I run into Lee every now and then, and um, I I saw her play a show at the City Winery in Nashville a few years back, and she was joking with me. She's like, "God, we were so." lame and not fun I'm like I thought we were pretty fun I mean you know we stayed up past 11 30 that one time remember uh, but she's like no we like you, you you were kind of you like to like go out and have some beers and then party a little bit but we were all such nerds I'm like yeah we, we kind of were but I mean we were for a band that had some success and traveled and again which is a recipe for doing everything bad to your body we 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 all pretty much had our heads screwed on fairly straight I think <laughs> so you're touring you have a platinum record behind you in your shot um was there a moment or a time period where you started noticing that people were noticing the band more when you're out in public or things like that yeah um I rarely even during the, the heyday of it would, would get recognized unless we were all together you know or um we were at a show or a festival and i'd be walking around you know but i would say i could count on one hand the times i was just walking around the street somewhere and somebody said hey are you the guitar player sitting on the richer i mean that's just you know who notices the guitar player <laughs> on the richer like would you know what the bass player of third eye blind looked like no, no you know um, point maybe i don't know but <laughs> so that didn't happen very much but can i tell you i'm a, can i tell you my greatest story ever and this right here is going to sum up my career as, as a musician because <laughs> everything i feel like the pattern in my life was is like an almost famous thing there, there were these moments where i almost felt like a rock star but something would just kick me down into my place and, and humble me but we um, how I'll, I won't say any cuss words or do anything too disgusting, but uh, <laughs> I'm just going to tell you the story. So we, um, the summer of '99, we went to Japan, Korea, and the Philippines, and um, that was a, a very interesting experience, especially for me because I got really, really sick. I think I ate some sushi on the bullet train, and mm. I was in bad shape. Like I, I, and this went on for two weeks while we were out there. I had to figure out a way, by the way, luckily most of what we were doing was promotion. So it'd be like a 20 minute set and then done. So I had about a 20, 30 minute window where I would sit on the toilet, take care of business. And then I would be okay for about 30 minutes and I'd have to go do that over and over again. I mean, it was a, it was a nightmare. I mean, I, I think about it still. And it's like, I still had my hospital card from going to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So I, I was really, really sick. Um, I wasn't getting any better and, and then we ended up flying to Manila in the Philippines and the one moment in my entire life I was like I felt like I was in the Beatles I couldn't enjoy it because I was having my situation and uh, we we landed and I think the only legit place to play in, in the in Manila because it's really a third world country and just painfully sad to drive down the streets and, and see how different it is from what what I'm used to um, but the one area where they would have bands play was in the food court of, of the mall. And so that's where we were going to play. And again, a lot of this had, I'm sure had to do with um, appeasing a radio station or something out there, but we, we had a, a van and we pulled up to the food court and we had thousands of fans waiting out there for us. I mean, this like, this never happened to us. I mean, we weren't that kind of band. We had fans, but not like 
crazy fans. And um, they were they were pounding on the van and shaking it and freaking out. They knew my name, like they recognized me. It was crazy and weird. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, but again, I, I'm more concerned about my stomach and visiting a bathroom so I could not embarrass myself while we were playing. So, <laughs> oh God, this is a true story, I swear. We, we get to the food court area of the mall. They have a little area roped off for us with curtains where we can sit and wait to play. And then everybody in the band knew at this point, Sean has to go to the bathroom and then, then we can play. So um, I'm, I'm asking where the bathroom is and they're like, oh, you know, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a walk down this way, but that's where your restroom is. So I'm like, okay, so I start walking down and before I know it, there's 20, 30, 40 people following me to the bathroom. Wow. And, oh yeah, it gets better. They're asking for my autograph. I'm like, man, I don't want to be rude, but I really have to go. It's an emergency. And <laughs> so I kid you not, I, I go into the bathroom and there's no doors on the stalls. <laughs> and they follow me into the bathroom and stand there and watch me. Oh no. As I, yeah, I know. Oh no is right. I mean, this is, this, this is about as low as it can possibly get as a human being <laughs> versus death or something. I mean, uh, and I, I, I just started laughing. I mean, I, it's like, I knew at the time this was going to be my best story ever to tell people on an interview like this. Um, most people would tell me not to talk about this, but I, I just, I think it's disgusting and funny. So, um, so that was my rock star moment. <laughs> so did anyone get an autograph? <laughs> I don't remember. Who knows? Uh, I probably did sign a few on my way back because I felt better at that point. <laughs> I mean, the bigger question is how do they tell this story now? <laughs> Thank God there were not any cell phones. Or <laughs> yeah, right? Or I would have been that guy throwing a temper tantrum, you know, and then they'd be like, <laughs> The celebrity's a jerk because he's, you know, <laughs> being mean to the fans. <laughs> so you're thought of by at least 30 or 40 people every time that song gets played again. So, yeah. um, uh, so, so what do you view as the keys to your success? What are the keys to my success? Oh, man, I'm, there's so many, but I think I've just, in it, almost everything I've done, I think I have a knack for surrounding myself with, with the right people, good people, people with, with good hearts and um, people that are talented and people that do things better than me so I can learn from them. Um, and as you were saying that, it kind of made me wonder, which did you enjoy more, the, the experience with your first band or with Sixpence? God, I love that question. Um, uh, I would say that the ex the experience with my first band, I felt more creative. I felt more a part of a team, um, and probably looking back, that experience was overall better. I mean, it was heartbreaking at times, and I can't say, oh, I was on Leno or Letterman or whatever you might want to brag about that that I did with Sixpence, um, but. The Lounge Flanders was uh, that experience you want to have as a person playing guitar in a 90s band. Um, and I wouldn't trade any of that for, for anything. And with Sixpence, it, it was cool. We got 
we were good, we got lucky, and we got to do some really cool things. But um, a lot of boring stuff in between, you know, a lot of just routine. You, you don't think of a job like that as being a, a routine kind of thing, but it, it did get to be very routine after a while. And did the Conan appearance and the Tonight Show appearance live up to what the hype or the expectation? Yeah, it, it was, um, we were pinching ourselves every time. It, uh, sounds like I'm bragging, maybe I am, but we did Leno five times, but every time we did it, we were like, oh my God, I can't believe we're doing this. This is really, really amazing. Um, and I think we were all, we always had a lot of gratitude for, for being able to do that. Um, and it was cool. You sit around for six hours before and do nothing, and then you do that. And that's, that's the weird mind screw of it all is because, I don't know, I can get up on stage and not really be nervous, but for some reason those things were terrifying. And I tried to play it off as I'm okay and I'm cool, but you sit around for six hours knowing you're about to be on TV. It's, I don't know, it's kind of nerve wracking. <laughs> And so was there ever a point that you felt that you were maybe um, faking it or that they had the wrong person, um, that you didn't deserve it maybe? Yeah, um, always. I, I mean, had I quit the band, they could have replaced me a day or two later. There's a lot of really good guitar players in Nashville, in case you haven't heard. <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's you don't want to dwell on that too much because you do form some chemistry and camaraderie, but you know, just about anybody in a band is replaceable unless you're the front person or, you know, or I, maybe you two, they couldn't, I can't imagine them replacing any of their players and a handful of other bands. But for the most part, let's be honest, most people are replaceable in bands. I mean, hell half the bands from like the nineties, 80s and 70s are touring with maybe one or two original <laughs> members and and they still seem to pull in crowds because they have the catalog and maybe the front person that that's still with them again i didn't dwell on that but i always sort of knew what, what my place was and and that um, i was could be easily replaced you talked about the the ending of of your first band Tell us a little bit about what happens kind of at the end of the story, if you will, with, with Sixpence. Yeah, um, so 9-11 happened. And right before that, we had gone into the uh, recording studio to make the follow-up record to the, the one back there that did really well. And it was just a great record. We, we loved, I loved that process. I got to be a part of the writing this time around. Um, I, I, this is the point I really felt like I, a part of the band, even though we had had a lot of success. Um, we had a wonderful time over at Ocean Way in Nashville, just living out of this beautiful studio for, um, for a few months. And we came out of that experience feeling like, wow, this, this could have some longevity to it. And um, we, we knew the album was really, really good. And I can't remember, it was going to be a fourth quarter release in 2001. And then in September of 2001, 9-11 happened. And that, it's, I always feel weird about boohooing about that because obviously, I, I mean, I didn't lose anybody close to me, but so many people went through so many other losses during that time, and especially in the entertainment industry. And we definitely were one of them. 
Um, and for some reason that just, of course it canceled the tour, it postponed the release of the album. Um, and then labels were closing down and similar to what we're going through right now, you know, it was just this weird ripple effect. Things were falling apart. Um, and gosh, to, to sit on a record that you were once really excited about, felt fresh for a year and a half, um, really just took the wheels away from it. And we went back and I think by the time we released Divine Discontent, it was probably a year and a half or two years after 9-11. So we, we, we probably sat on the record for over two years um, and didn't really play a whole lot together. It was a very strange time. Um, and what we, I'm trying to think, we, we ended up recording two or three uh, songs to add to just to make it feel kind of fresh and new to us. And that's a whole other funny story. But by the time the record came out and we started touring again, it, it was probably about 2003 at that point. And there were some cool moments there, but I think we'd really lost some momentum. Um, people had really kind of forgotten about us. It was a lot of just our real faithful fans that were coming to the shows and our shows weren't really well attended. And when that happens, people start throwing the blame on anything they possibly could. I mean, at one point I was rushing one of the songs on the guitar, according to another band member. I mean, it was just one thing after another where, you know, nobody's going to blame you for being ahead of the beat on a song when there's 20,000 people cheering for you. But <laughs> when there's only 300 in the audience, it, every, everything's a problem. And, and it, um, things just kind of fell apart at that point, really. So what have you learned about yourself throughout your journey? Well, at that time, what I learned, a huge mistake that I made from like the time we recorded that last record to the time we went back on tour is, what was I doing during that time? I have no idea. I mean, we were on salary, which was really great because um, we'd, we'd had a successful record. But why wasn't I like, I was doing a little bit of this, but why wasn't I like spending five hours a day writing music and getting better at the guitar instead of, who knows, going to a coffee shop and hanging out and talking about how cool I am or whatever. No, I don't think I did that. But I mean, really, I sh that should have been a time where I should have felt very humbled and forgotten about any past success that we had and really operated as if I was desperate to, to get my music out there and, and learn and get better at a craft. And that wasn't an era where I was getting smarter or learning much of anything. I was just like, every day hoping that we would get some good news to release our record and get back on the road. So huge mistake. I mean, you've, I just think in, in this business, you got to always be hungry and, and um, not think that any success that you've had is going to sustain for very long. <laughs> so what are the odds of a lounge flounders reunion? <laughs> oh God, I don't know. That would be awesome. Um, I still love those guys. I haven't seen them in a million years. Let me see if I can find her CD. Hang on. <laughs> I, yep. Here it is. I'm the blurry guy in the back. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and that's the church that we recorded in, in downtown Nashville. And it's actually still there. Nice. It's a pretty cool record, actually. I should listen to it. I haven't heard it <laughs> in my ears. <laughs> encourage our listeners to find it yeah yeah 
maybe we'll sell a thousand and one copies. Now. <laughs> uh, what advice would you give an aspiring musician? Hmm. Well, um, I, I think that going to, to Belmont and figuring out a way to graduate and get my degree and still play in, in a band was, was probably one of the smartest things I've ever done because um, I, I was able once I decided to get off the road and I played with several different groups after um, Sixpence. But once I was really, really ready to not be on the road, um, I, I did some, I do producing and other things. And now I've got this whole film industry thing that I can talk about later. But um, I, I was really glad I got my degree because it allowed me to get into the school system and, and teach music and, and just open up a lot of doors. And I know a lot of people say, yeah, you don't really want to have a backup plan, but I don't necessarily think getting a, a degree in something is is a backup plan. I think it's just a really smart thing to do because for most people, this music thing doesn't last forever. I mean, there are a few lifers out there, but it's hard to sustain. Like one of my best friends, Buck Johnson, sweetest guy I'll ever meet. Um, I, I toured with him with this girl named Butterfly Boucher and we got to be really close friends. Well, he's been out with Aerosmith for the last five years. Um, and you would think he was one of their members because in a lot of their recent pictures, like he's out there bowing with the original five members at the end. Wow. He's, he's, got a, he's got a great voice. He gets a lot of work because he can play keys and sing those really high notes. And Steven Tyler just loved how he could harmonize with him and hit some higher notes than him. So he's been working non was working nonstop um, in, in Vegas and, um, and now he's not working and, and he's, he's not like starving or anything, but he, he's, I'm using him as an example because I, I think that he's one of those road lifers and he's trying to figure it all out right now. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm sure he'll be out there doing it again because he's one of the most talented people I've ever met, but I, I, I feel lucky that I've, um, I'm not relying on that one kind of job being on the road as a musician as much. And I, I think that's been nice because I have my degree. Now, again, if, if you're, I don't think if I'm being really honest with myself, I wasn't, I'm not that kind of guitar player that can play anything at the drop of a hat and go out on the road with anybody. I'm not even really a great singer. So I don't have that like, backup singing threat that you can hire this guy. He's going to sing high notes. He's going to play, he's going to shred it on the guitar. Um, I, I was never really that. I was always that guy that just wanted to be in a band and create music and, and write. Um, and if, if you're that guy or that girl, um, great, but it, it's not always going to work out. If, if you're somebody like my friend Buck who can just kill it on the keys and sing backup, he's probably going to be able to sustain a living playing live shows as long as he wants to. But I think if, if you're, if you don't have that drive to, to want to, if you know early on that you don't have that drive to be on the road all the time or play that game where you get a call for a session and, and hope to God that you get enough sessions a week to sustain, it, I think it's so important to go to school and get a degree and, and have some, something that's going to open up more doors for you. And you mentioned you're doing film production at 
right now? Yeah, so that that's where I am. I've, I teach film and music at a private school in Nashville called Curry Ingram Academy. And that's been a wonderful addition to my career. And it allows me to do a lot of other things outside of that, like write and produce music. But in the last five to 10 years, I've, I've grown to love doing video and film. And, and there's so many open doors there with um, really, really great cameras that used to cost like $40,000, only costing $5,000 and doing the same kind of thing. And then um, now that this time that we're in where bands aren't playing live, I've got a, a team of um, two colleagues of mine where we're really dialing in this live stream thing and we're trying to get artists um, to take that next step from just doing an acoustic guitar show in front of their, their iPhones to a multi-camera shoot with a great um, sound and everything. So we've been, we're building that company right now. We are, uh, we, we've done a handful of shows that have gone really, really well. And, hoping to, to grow that business. Uh, I've done documentaries and, and videos and EPKs and a lot of other stuff, but right now I'm, I'm really passionate about getting bands out there working and however we can get them money, whether it's through sponsorship or donations. But I, I do think people are gonna get a little tired of whoever playing their songs on an acoustic guitar and in front of their not so great microphone on their computer. Uh, so even like, there's, let's see, Rashid, well, hang on. I'm, I'm working on a, a group that just did a little jam session the other day. These are like your Nashville A players get together. And um, that was for a, a guy who's doing a drum sponsorship, but, but we did a, a live stream there. And it's been really fun. There, there's just a lot of interesting things. This is a very gray area because Look, if, if you don't have like the NBC van outside of your house with a, with a satellite, there's no guarantee that this thing is going to drop or not. So, um, gosh, there's, I could talk about this all day, but encoders and um, latency with the audio and video, but we've, we've got this thing really dialed in. So we're excited to start bringing in some, some maybe even A artists to, to do concerts so people can start really enjoying watching concerts online. That's cool. Yeah. That's very cool. As we mentioned before the recording began, uh, our background is on studying expertise and kind of high performance. And there's the classic nature versus nurture debate and extreme nature view would be you're born with everything that you need. There's really no need for improving it. An extreme nurture view would be you're born with nothing. Everything has to do with spending time or the environment improving it. Where do you fall maybe even percentage wise on this spectrum as far as music ability or anything else so nature would be the the natural kind of yeah nature applies to singers and nurture applies to everybody else i think <laughs> yeah. not so, to say singers don't have to work on their craft but come on man like they're just blessed with these voices and yeah. i'm jealous <laughs> sure i think everything else yeah you really i think the the nature part is that somehow you're born with an excitement for something. And I've given guitar and piano lessons before. And I usually, I'll tell the parents right away, like I can keep doing this, but I'm going to tell you right now, your kid is not excited about this. Mm -hmm. And if they're not excited, the, the, the nurture part's not going to kick in. Okay. Uh, what's the biggest takeaway from your story? 
Hmm. Um, well, so far my story is the biggest takeaway. Going back to surrounding yourself with the right people. I've, I've gotten some great friends out of all this and, and I keep in touch, maybe not with everybody I've been in a band with, but so many people that I've crossed paths with in the music industry or outside of it have just become my, my dear friends and um, have inspired me and have taught me in so many ways. And even right now, the, the two guys that I'm working with, one is a really great producer and one's a great sound engineer. And the two of them do things that I'm not good at. I'm, I'm kind of pulling in my weight with uh, being a DP, director of photography on these. Um, but I've once again, feel like I've, I'm surrounding myself with really, really good people that know things that I don't, that are gonna make me look better all around. And um, I just have always been able to kind of sniff out somebody that's that's a red flag in this business and, and um, stay away from those people. Uh, I just crave sincerity in, in people when I'm, when I'm working creatively or in any endeavor. So that's my biggest takeaway. And, and the fact that I, I talked, when I talked about kind of that post 9-11 year or so, how, how complacent and lazy I got with, <laughs> with things because I had some success. I, I would never do that again. I'm always looking forward to things like this, um, the, the film thing that I'm doing right before the COVID thing hit, we were, we thought we were going to be a affordable live shoot company that did pro tool recordings for live shows, uh, a five camera shoot and delivered like a nice quality live show for a band at a reasonable price. And then I could say, Oh, well that sucks. I can't do that now and pout about it. But, but I've, I'm, glad that I've surrounded myself with some really inspiring people and we all decided, well, let's just rethink this. Let's figure out a way to do a high quality live stream shoot. So I think that all goes back to getting around the right people. Awesome. Well, Sean, it's been, uh, your story is fascinating. I appreciate it so much. You've taken the time out to join us. Oh, Kevin and Lauren, thank you. Um, my wife thanks you because now I don't have to talk about myself all day. Got it out of the way, huh? No, I'm not that big of a narcissist, but but uh, I, I joke with her sometimes. I'm like, I I like telling my stories. It's kind of fun. They are great stories. Thank you for telling them. Path Stilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by the Path Distilled, all right reserved.